Stories UK here again for episode 28. Undercover Policing. I picked up a copy of Undercover Policing, the true story of Britain's secret police, at Victoria Railway Station, the Waterstones Bookshop. This has proved to be the inspiration for this podcast. Although there's loads of information online, especially old Guardian newspaper reports. If there's any name that you want to inquire about, just put them in Google and Guardian newspaper and then everybody, uh, they will come up. Well, some years ago, uh, back when I was studying at college, there was a lecturer called Bill that everyone got on well with. And we used to have some in-depth conversations in a nearby pub on Friday afternoons when college had finished. I remember one of these conversations well. He told me that he was a student in 1968 and he was protesting in Grosvenor Square outside the American Embassy against the war in Vietnam. He told me of his shock as he was attacked by the police with truncheons. This was the UK that had been brought up in. The police were supposed to be the good guys and this should not have been happening to him. He wasn't a violent person, just protesting against something he was passionate about. He said that it changed him, making him cynical and suspicious of the police. 1968. The police and the year that the UK started using undercover policing. The undercover police belonged to a group called the Special Demonstration Squad, aka the SDS. They started life in 1968 after the anti-Vietnam War protests outside the US Embassy turned violent. The police had not been prepared for the unprecedented level of violence directed at them. It was a wake-up call for senior officers in the Metropolitan Police who realised they needed a new way to gather intelligence about these so-called hate-filled subversives that they now had to deal with. I would like to add here that Bill could not have been called a hate-filled subversive and the environmental demonstrations that I attended and witnessed police intimidation and violence, I have not seen any evidence of hate-filled subversives, only people that care passionately about the planet and each other. The Special Demonstration Squad, SDS, were part of the Metropolitan Police Special Branch, MPSB, a covert unit which in itself was in a secretive department special branch. They worked to guidelines set by the Home Office that were agreed to by the Association of Chief Police Officers, ACPO. The MPSB, Metropolitan Police Special Branch, were concerned with national security and they were divided into two operational and command units. One focused on counter-terrorism and the other providing security. These units were divided into a number of other squads. C unit dealt with domestic ext- extremism and had strong links to the SDS. The SDS were primarily part of S squad, which provided a variety of support services. The SDA was originally known as the Special Operations Squ- Squad, SOS, changing its name to the Special Demonstration Squad in 1973 and the Special Duty Section in 1997. 
The SDS, to their credit, have been credited with preventing bloodshed on numerous occasions by using intelligence to preempt potentially violent situations. Unlike regular undercover officers, members of the SDS do not have to gather evidence with a view to prosecuting their targets. This enables them to witness and even engage in criminal activity without fear of disciplinary action or compromising a subsequent court case. It's said that the SDS undercover officers' main objective was infiltration of groups. I've taken this to mean infiltration that is generally done because the state opposes a group's goals and wants to determine the threat level to the establishment. It has been suggested that some of the undercover police were agent provocateurs. I've taken this to mean that the provocation is generally done to explicitly injure or to discredit a group that might otherwise be considered effective. It has also been suggested that a lot of the target groups that the undercover police were interested in were not dangerous or that they intended to break the law and that there is general puzzlement why many of these groups were actually targeted by the SDS. As I said, I've borrowed greatly from the book Undercover by Bob Evans and Paul Lewis who tell how the London Greenpeace group, not to be confused with Greenpeace, was about to be closed down because attendance at meetings were so poor. But a sudden influx of new members kept the group going. These new members were undercover policemen and corporate spies. At a later court case, the McLibel trial, Google that one, brought by McDonald's, it was admitted that there were at least seven spies working McDonald's in the group. Incidentally, the idealistic young lawyer who gave his time for free for the McLeibel defendants was Keir Starmer, who later became the Director of Public Prosecutions. The undercover police were known as Harry's, as they had to look like the agitators they were mixing with. The undercover officers who made up the unit were given new identities. They were given flats, vehicles and cover jobs while working in the field often for years at a time, and of course with expense accounts paid by the taxpayer. Peter Black, real name Peter Francis, joined the Met in 1986, straight from school. He discovered an interest in political ideology and public affairs. He initially wanted to join the security services, but found the entry was barred to all but Oxbridge graduates. His best chance of doing that kind of work, he was told, would be to join the Metropolitan Police Force, the Met, and apply for a job in Special Branch, essentially a wing of MI5, which is Britain's uh, domestic counterintelligence and security agency. Peter distinguished himself during his cadet training and his two-year probationary uh, being top of the class. He joined Special Branch after four years in uniform and he spent three years working to counter Irish terrorism at Heathrow Airport. After that he was recruited to the SDS, the undercover police. At first Black just provided backup information to officers in the field. Three of these officers were in left-wing groups, two were in animal rights groups, two were in right-wing groups 
and there were single officers in other campaigns. These undercover, undercover officers were said to be members of the 27 Club, the unofficial name of the SDS, which was set up on the 27th of October 1968. Black's backup work involved paperwork and checking things like car registration numbers and location of addresses. Before they were deployed, every SDS officer was visited at home to ensure that they were married. They introduced that rule after one of the officers refused to come out of the field. He enjoyed being with his contacts so much that he was willing to give up his police salary and everything that went along uh, in order to stay with the group that he was infiltrating. The SDS insisted that officers had to be married on the basis that if you had something in the real world to come back to, you were less likely to want to remain in role and turn rogue. Before Black got to work at Undercover, he had to build himself a legend, a whole life story that he would use as his identity undercover. The officer would search records at St Catherine's House, which is Britain's births, marriages and deaths information bank. He was looking for a dead child born at the same time as himself with the same Christian name that he could blend into his history. Black found the identity of a boy born in London in 1965 called Peter Black, who had died in the Middle East during 1969. That was the name that he adopted. Choosing a child that died overseas was a bonus because they were more difficult to trace for anyone that may be investigating an undercover policeman. This method of obtaining a false identity was popularised in the 1973 film The Day of the Jackal. The SDS regularly used this method of using deceased children's identities in the creation of a covert identity and the instructions were given on how to do this in the SDS's tradecraft document, the A to Z of how to construct a legend for undercover policemen. Visits made to St Catherine's searching for suitable dead children were known as a Jekyll run in recognition of the book. The police later defended themselves by arguing it was not actually in contravention of any laws of the land or any national policy guidelines at the time. The undercover officers would familiarise themselves with the lives of the people that they were pretending to be, which would necessitate a visit to the house where the child had lived to get to know the surroundings and pick up little details. They would memorise the names of the dead child's mother, father and siblings, and try and work small details into their backstory. Managers in the SDS who arranged for the fake documentation for their undercover officers also made sure that if anybody checked up on their SDS officers, there was a silent trigger on records. Anyone pulling a file on an undercover officer would trigger an automatic alert sent to the SDS, so the police would know that somebody was investigating their undercover officer. When an officer found a suitable dead child, the SDS would issue a fake passport, a fake driving licence, bank account and national insurance number. Peter Black was to infiltrate the anti-racist movement. He had to learn the best way to do this from experienced SDS staff. Knowledge, experience and tricks were handed down to new recruits by old hands. Black was assigned a mentor who had infiltrated the Anti-Nazi League and Socialist Workers' Party back in the 1970s. 
Black's mission was to infiltrate the Youth Against Racism group, better known by the acronym YRE, which was part of the Militant Tendencies Organisation organization set up to confrontate, uh, confront the BMP in the early 1990s, BMP being the British National Party, a right-wing political group. Black's tactic was to infiltrate the anti-racist movement was the technique usually used by the SDS, which was to get close to a key individual in the political group. Black manages via a scuffle in a queue in the dining hall of the Kingsway College he was attending in the Grays Inn Road, London. Black later said, You get given a file on your target that tells you everything you need to know. You become that person's brother. You know everything that makes them tick. You know what they like to drink, how much they drink. You know where they like to drink. You know what kind of music they like. You know what kind of women they like. You become their brother. They never, the brother that they never knew they had. None of it's ever said to the target. It's far more subtle than that. The first time they get into the car, it will be just the right kind of music playing. The first time a redhead, a redhead walks by, it will be, God, I'm really into redheads. It's done really, really cleverly. At this time, racial tension was mounting in London. September 1993. The BMP, British National Party, the extreme right-wing party, won their first council seat on Tower Hamlets Council, which is basically the old East End of London. Stepney, Poplar, Bethnal Green. The population there had a population of about 30% white, British, 30% Muslim and 36% other ethnic minorities. There had been some vicious attacks there, thought to be racist attacks. At Brick Lane, for many years, a far right-wing groups had been selling their newspapers on the streets on Sundays. Now the area was the centre of the Bangladeshi community, and anti-fascist groups wanted to drive away the right-wing supporters, which had man they managed to do so by using cle clever Trojan horse tactics. Black, who by all accounts enjoyed a punch-up, managed to get himself accepted by the anti-fascists and learnt of an attempt to close a BNP bookshop at Welling with a huge demonstration on the 16th of October 1993. The bookshop was considered the uh, headquarters of the BNP and the area had seen a noticeable rise in the racist attacks since the bookshop opened in 1989. This including the murder of Stephen Lawrence in April 1993, which shook the nation and was the forerunner of the current knife crime epidemic we are seeing in London today. Black managed to warn the, uh, met of the massive demonstration at Welling, and as a consequence all police leave was cancelled. This was seen as a job well done by Black, and proved the importance of having undercover officers, and enhanced Black's reputation. Black had managed to successfully infiltrate the YRE movement, as he managed to make many friends in the movement, and the social life that he led was hectic, as often activists went to the pub after a meeting or demonstration, the drinking would continue into the early hours, the next day at someone, someone's flat. Black, Peter Black, genuinely enjoyed the company of his activist friends, who he described as good people. 
Black had a reputation as a tough guy. He routinely engaged in violence against members of the public and uniformed police officers to maintain his cover. Hannah Sell, the National Security uh, Secretary of the YRE at the time of, office, uh, of Black's deployment, remembers Black well, but is furious at the implication that the group were involved in violence. She said that we were well-organised, massive, peaceful protesters against racism and the BMP. But in doing so, we often fight, faced violence from the far right and the police. Black had told his friends that he had a mother in Germany who had cancer, which gave him the excuse to go missing for periods under the story that he was visiting his mother. Black actually had a wife and young children who lived outside London, and he invented excuses so he could visit them from time to time, when he would also write up his reports. Whenever he visited his wife, he would take a circuitous route to be sure that he was not being followed. This process was known as dry cleaning. Black's undercover job was a part-time mob job band at a local school, which gave him the use of a van, and which was useful for his undercover work. He took time to maintain his appearance of a revolutionary leftist. He developed a look of a ponytail and a bowl patch, which made him stand out and made him look a bit of a loser. He also played on his claimed dyslexia, which meant that he did not have to read the propaganda he was offered, and it made him less likely to be suspected of being a spy. On Thursday afternoons, there would be a regular meeting with other SDS op, undercover police, where he would report any intelligence. Black calculated that 100 members of the uh, Youth Against Racism group and other anti-racist campaigners had files kept on them. The special branch would deploy sniper-like photographers and had access to the network of CCTV cameras that were being installed around London at this time. Black was to come to the conclusion that the individuals were being spied on for having opinions that the government disliked. The definition of a subversion was so loose that it included anyone exercising their democratic right to protest. Black had sex with, that, uh, with activists that he worked with, as this provided him with cover. He argued that he could not be a convincing undercover officer without occasionally sleeping with women. Black's wife knew he was an undercover, but was unaware of the details of his work and certainly did not know he was sleeping with other women. The SDS hierarchy knew that sex would take place with their operatives and gave the unofficial rule that they should avoid falling in love. There were women undercover police that had sex with male activists, again to maintain their cover. It's not known if there were any same-sex couplings. There were occasions when undercover police officers fathered children during their long-term relationships undercover. In one case, Black knew of an undercover officer who vanished from the life of the mother and child when his deployment ended. However, this SDS officer continued his career in the special branch and his former partner, the mother, remained politically active, enabling the officer to periodically check up on her by reading confidential reports about her, campaigning. One of Black's superiors in the SDS, Bob Lambert, criticised the officer and told officers always use contraception when sleeping with political campaigners. 
Bob Lambert did not tell them that he himself had fathered the child whilst he was undercover. Black was sympathetic to the anti-racist cause, but the decision was taken to remove Black from his undercover position, although Black wanted to continue in role. His deployment lasted from 1993 to 1997. It ended with fears that his presence and role within groups protesting against black deaths in police custody and bungled investigations into the racist murders would be revealed during the public inquiry being held by Sir William McPherson into the death of the South London teenager Stephen Lawrence. At the time, there were riots in Los Angeles known as the Rodney King riots, protesting against police brutality. The Met did not want any copycat riots in London and were withdrawing their undercover police from anti-racist group protest groups as a precaution. Black began preparing his exit from his undercover role. Each officer will have a different explanation for their disappearance. There are the usual set pieces whereby officers pretend to have a mental breakdown or go on the run from the police. In the summer of 1997, Black let it be known to his activist friends that he had the desire to go travelling abroad. Then he claimed that he got sacked from his job at his school and as a consequence had stolen equipment from the school, including the van. Black claimed to have been travelled around Europe on the run from the police, and that Christmas he travelled to Greece in order to post cards to friends in order to maintain the charade. Black had another leaving do with his fellow SDS officers, the undercover police, the 27 Club. They, uh, they went paintballing for the day. For Black, life after his undercover work was not easy. He claimed to miss a stimulation of undercover work. Then he started to have mental problems and stress, probably as a result of his years, his four years of undercover work, when he was constantly worried that he would be found out as an imposter by his friends. He took time off from his new desk job, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and management decided he was unfit to continue work. In April 2001, at the age of 36, Black was retired and given a pension. Black would go on to sue the SDS, arguing that his mental health was damaged as a direct result of his covert work. His action against the police lasted five years, and he accused the police of using dirty tricks to discourage him from pursuing his claim. None of his colleagues gave him any support, and his claim was eventually settled out of court. He was paid an undisclosed sum in compensation. Black would later tell his story, as Officer Ray, to the Observer newspaper, and from March the 14th, 2010, a number of articles were printed about Black, to which he comments on them in the Guardian comment section to the stories. Amongst other allegations, Black claimed that if a police spy was in danger of being locked up, prosecution of the officer and other activists would be mysteriously dropped. However, on other occasions, he claimed that the prosecutions of undercover officers in role were allowed to go ahead under their assumed names, as this helped build their credibility. Each decision seemed to have been taken on a case-by-case basis, The Peter Black story did not really break into the press 
and make front-page news. It was the uncovering of another character that was to push the story to the top of the news list. The story of the undercover policeman Mark Kennedy, posing as Mark Stone. A network of journalists at collectives that report on political and social issues. They published a story online on the 24th of October 2010, giving the name of an undercover policeman, Mark Kennedy, a.k.a. Mark Stone, who had been discovered by his long-term activist girlfriend as an imposter. This is when the undercover police story broke into the mainstream press. Stories then started reporting that a number of other undercover police officers had part of their force persona entered into intimate relationships with members of targeted groups and in some cases proposed marriage or father children with protesters who were unaware that their partner were a, uh, was a police officer undercover. Mark Kennedy would become what was known as the deepest swimmer that the SDS ever admitted to. He had been born on the 7th of July in 1969 in London and brought up in Orpington, Kent. When two years old, he had been injured whilst playing with a cardboard box. A staple had become loose and lodged in his left eye, giving him a disfigurement, where he appeared to be looking at two, in two directions at the same time. This disfigurement is sometimes known by the slang term boss-eyed. Kennedy left school at 16 with no real qualifications but at the age of 19 decided to follow his father's footsteps and join the police force. He married early, an Irish retail manager called Adele Cashman, a couple of years older than him, in the Irish Republic. The marriage soon produced two children. Kennedy was an enthusiastic rock climber and travelled abroad to Pakistan to do some climbing. By 1998, Kennedy was working as a plainclothes policeman targeting drug dealers in the Metropolitan Police Force. Kennedy's enthusiasm for undercover work had been noticed and he joined the NPOIU, the National Public Order Intelligence Unit, that had been set up to counter domestic insurgency. The SDS were based in London. The NPOIU were a countryside, uh, countrywide operation used by each force with a much larger budget. Kennedy's mission was to infiltrate eco-activists in Nottingham, based at the Sumac Centre, an independent social centre that had opened in 1984 as a hub for eco-activists operating in the area. Kennedy claimed that he'd moved from London to get away from a broken love affair and that he was a rope access technician, a professional climber, often employed on several engineering jobs to access difficult areas. He claimed to have been a former drug smuggler who made a pile of money from his drug dealing days, or drug smuggling days, smuggling drugs from Pakistan. Kennedy found it difficult to get close to his target group as they were a friendship group made during the anti-Rhodes movement of the 1990s. But he managed to rent a room in a shared house near the Sumac Centre. Then he started seeing female activists and attending political events advertised by Sumac. 
Slowly, Kennedy was accepted by the Nottinghamshire eco-activists. He was known as Mark Stone, a.k.a. Transport Mark, as he had a van. It seems that if you had a van, that got you into the uh, eco-activists group. Kennedy had various sexual relationships with activists. Jean, aged 36 at the time, an environmental activist based in France, met Kennedy several times. She told the Guardian newspaper, it's well known in the movement that Kennedy slept with a large number of women who didn't know he was a police officer and therefore had sex with them without their informed consent. Kennedy only ever admitted to having two relationships with female activists. Kennedy started a relationship with Lisa that was to last six years. Lisa was connected with activists around the country and was trusted and respected by all. His relationship with Lisa gave Kennedy access to the heart of the radical protest movement, a world in which he immersed himself and which he later said he enjoyed. Apart from his normal wage, Kennedy was earning five hours overtime each day, as well as spending money on rent and other expenses. It's estimated that he was costing the British taxpayer a quarter of a million pounds a year. Some of his friends thought Kennedy did not live the lifestyle of an anti-capitalist, but Kennedy argued that he was earning high wages as a professional climber, and he earned the new nickname Flash Mark, which he seemed to enjoy. Kennedy's closer friends assumed that he was living off the proceeds of drug smuggling. Kennedy's appearance changed. He became obsessed with biomechanical body art, tattoos giving the appearance of machinery under the skin. He changed his music tastes. He became a drum and bass DJ and generally threw himself into the eco-activist lifestyle. The Drax coal-fired power station in North Yorkshire was a target for eco-activists as it was the single most polluter of carbon dioxide in the UK and a climate camp that had been set up nearby by activists. A group of activists, including Mark Kennedy, had been planning to break into the plant to force a temporary closure and to gain publicity. Kennedy and his girlfriend Lisa were joined by ten other protesters, including another undercover policewoman called Lynn Watson, to cut the perimeter wire and get inside the plant. The M the MPOYU had been warned in advance by Kennedy and Watson and ambushed the protesters. According to Kennedy, he was beaten up by the police and was so angry that he refused to obey orders from his MPOYU superiors at the time. The MPOYU had a dilemma on their hands. Kennedy was a useful and an effective operative and had a lot of time and money invested in him but he was threatening to turn rogue. The problem appeared to have been sorted out when he was given a stern warning over who he should be loyal to and who paid his wages when he finally attended a meeting with his handlers. Kennedy headed to Germany with Lisa and started making contact with Euro Anakinism. Over the next couple of years, he gained the reputation as Flash Mark, a committed activist, a person that that activists could rely on to contribute to ambitious protests. Kennedy was involved in activism in 11 different countries, including the USA, 
Italy, France, Germany, Spain and Denmark. He was the first undercover policeman to spy for different countries' police forces, helping to bring different police forces together. There was criticism from some countries regarding Kennedy. The German politician, André Hunkel, said Kennedy had been operating in the border of legality in Germany and he was an agent provocateur who visited Germany at least five times between 2004 and 2009 and, according to activists, feeding information to the German police. There was also criticism from Icelandic and Irish politicians. But Kennedy was now a well-known European eco-activist. He wrote a manual on how to build a protest site, a climate camp from the quantities of food required to feed people, and how to construct dry toilets and other such information. In April 2009, Kennedy was involved in an attempt to disrupt energy production at Ratcliffe-on-Soar power station in Nottinghamshire to draw attention to the pollution it was creating. The idea was to recruit a hundred activists for a showpiece act of civil dis disobedience by breaking into the power station and occupying the plant for a week. Kennedy seems to have wanted to take a leading role in the action, but was informed by his supervisor that this was out of the question. Kennedy was supposed to be an observer, only taking part in criminal activity as a last resort. Kennedy's instructions were to obtain a preemptive intelligence. He only had permission to hire a van and drive activists to the gate of the power station. He was prohibited from entering the site and barred from taking part in the demonstration. Over the next 24 hours, a number of minivans would bring activists to the Nottingshire base at Iona School, which is being used as a climate camp. Once inside the school, the activists were to be split into different groups and giving a briefing on their role in the direct action. By the evening, 114 activists had gathered. Kennedy's job was to climb one of the chimney stacks and suspend a climbing frame bat tent to live in during the week's demonstration. The police raided the school before the demonstration had even started. Everyone was arrested on suspicion of being involved in a conspiracy to commit aggravated trespass and criminal damage at the power industry facility. This was a new tactic adopted by the police, as in the past the police would have always waited for the protest before making an arrest. This preemptive strike to arrest on charges of conspiracy was an interesting new development. When reporting on the arrests, the Guardian newspaper said there had been increasing concern over police tactics, especially the fact the police were targeting thousands of political in campaigners in surveillance operations and storing their information and their details on databases. Some environmental activists said there was a suspicion that arrests in the Nottingham followed a tip-off from the police informer inside the campaign group. Kennedy was concerned that if the case reached the courts, then his cover could be blown. He was increasingly paranoid that the activists would work out that he was the police spy. Of all the 114 activists arrested that night, he was the only one not represented by the same firm of lawyers, 
Bindman's, as the NPOIU did not want their spy represented by a human rights firm. Kennedy was livid, arguing that if everyone is represented by Bindman's except him, then it makes him stand out and it looks strange. Then Kennedy's position was again compromised when the prosecutors decided that who out of the 114 activists should be charged. The decision was made to let the fringe activists go and only charged a smaller group for trespass. An error was made and Kennedy was charged with this group. When the police realised their mistake, the charges against Kennedy were suddenly dropped without explanation, making him stand out yet again. July 2009. Waiting for the court case. Kennedy was celebrating his 40th birthday with other activists who were turning 40 during June and July 2009. He got a text message from the NPOIU telling him that his operation was over. Kennedy was enjoying his life as an undercover policeman, acting as an eco-activist too much and found it difficult to accept the order. It was a way of life now. It's a way of life he became used to and enjoyed. He made lots of friends and was respected by many people across Europe. The thought of a committed activist had become his life. Kennedy went away after feigning a, a breakdown and his eco-warrior friends for a few weeks in order to consider his position. He decided to resign from the police and join a detective agency that spied on campaigners on behalf of corporate business clients such as Eon, the energy giant who operated power plants. Documents obtained by the Guardian newspaper suggest that after quitting the Met, Kennedy attempted to continue to use his adopted identity to infiltrate protest groups. Kennedy set up two companies. One is connected to an individual who previously worked at Global Open, a private security firm set up by a former special branch detective. The company specialises in keeping a discreet watch on protest groups. Global Open is one of many detective agencies spying on protesters. Other companies providing the same service include Inkerman's Group, Vercola and C2 International. It's said there are many spies employed by such companies posing as in protesters, more in fact than uh, there are undercover police. Kennedy was a good prospect for Global Open, as he had already had the contacts and undercover identity. He'd invested six years of his life, and the taxpayers had paid more than almost £2 million in creating his undercover identity, Mark Stone. In late September 2009, Kennedy began working as a consultant for Global Open. However, life was more difficult for Kennedy now. He did not have the expense account, did not have the backup the fake passport, driving licence or bank accounts in the name of Mark Stone, his undercover persona. He was struggling financially. He bought a house canal boat and a new van. Then he returned to Nottingham. His friends were pleased to see him, but concerned over his attitude and his mood swings. He was no longer Flash Mark, the Flash Mark persona. His friends wondered what was troubling him, what had changed his personality. Eventually, he was found out by his girlfriend Lisa, who discovered his passport, giving his true identity. 
and messages on a mobile phone that had been hidden away. Further inquiries by the eco-activists saw Kennedy's cover blown away. And in September 2010, Kennedy was confronted by his fellow eco-activists. Kennedy broke down and admitted everything, claimed that he had changed as a person and was now a convert to the environmental cause. Kennedy said that he would act as a witness for the defence in the upcoming court cases regarding the Ratcliffe Power Station. Kennedy did not act as a witness for the defence, but his admissions that he was a police officer and by telling the activists of the background of the police investigation, it was sufficient to undermine the prosecution. The defence of the activists was that they were only guilty of civil disobedience. Kennedy's surveillance tapes supported the activists' argument that they had only planned to occupy the power plant in a safe way to stop carbon emissions rather than the prosecution alleged as a publicity stunt. The protesters also claimed convincingly that the undercover police officer, Kennedy, played a central role in organising and paying for the invasion. We're not talking about somebody sitting at the back of a meeting taking notes, said Danny Chivers, one of the six defendants, to accuse Kennedy of crossing the line from passive spy to agent provocateur. He was in the thick of it. It was a case of entrapment. More embarrassingly still for his police minders, Kennedy was described as so repentant that he was willing to betray his ex-employers and give evidence that would help the activists. According to their lawyer, Kennedy had apparently become convinced of their cause and gone native, offering to help the defence. Kennedy's handlers, who had spent millions of taxpayers' money on spying, now listened to the judge describe the defendants as students, teachers and social workers who were upstanding and admirable citizens, with a genuine concern for others and survivor of the planet Earth. For the senior managers of NPOIU, it was their turn to look at themselves and the behaviour of their undercover police that had been exposed and the activists that had been spent years being spied upon, being praised in court for their high moral principles and being found not guilty. Headlines were being made across the world that the UK was now a police state with intrusive surveillance against peaceful activists. Over the next few weeks, other undercover police spies were outed as the police chiefs desperately tried to pull undercover police from their missions and former undercover policemen and women were unmasked. Amongst the undercover policemen exposed, there was Bob Lambert. Bob Lambert, who was accused of being an agent provocateur. He used the identity of Mark Robert Robertson to take the ID Bob Robertson. Mark had died aged seven of cardiac failure. One of the authors of the McLeibel leaflet, Bob Lambert, used the alias Bob Robertson in his five years of infiltrating the London Greenpeace group. In the 1980s, Lambert infiltrated animal rights and environmental groups and had sexual relations with a number of women activists. During his deployment, which started in 1984, he had a relationship with a then 22-year-old animal rights activist known only as Jackie, without disclosing to her that he was a police spy. A son was born in 1985, 
but in 1988 Lambert claimed that he had to flee abroad to Spain because he feared the police were going to arrest him for crimes committed as an animal rights activist. It does seem likely that Lambert ignited an incendiary advice at the branch of Debenhams when infiltrating animal rights campaigners. The incident occurred in 1987 and an explosion inflicted £300,000 worth of damage to the branch of Harrow, uh, Debenhams Harrow, North London. Detective Inspector Robert Lambert rose through the ranks of a special branch and then he went on to set up the Muslim contact unit within the special branch following 9-11. This sought to foster partnership between the police and the Islamic community, although it seems more likely to have been a method of spying on the Muslim community. Then Lambert worked as a lecturer at the universities of St Andrews and Exeter. He wrote exclusively for the media and became an author, writing books such as Al-Qaeda in London, and he appeared on TV and in the media. This is when he was spotted by Jackie. In May 2019, last month, it's reported that police chiefs were taking legal action against Bob Lambert. Lambert's son, who's in his late 20s now, is suing the SDS, alleging he was suffered psychiatric damage after discovering at the age of 26 that his father was not a radical protester that he claimed to be, but instead a police spy. Now it's emerged that the Met is seeking to make Bob Lambert, the former undercover officer, also defend the legal claim that his son is launched. If the Met succeeds in making Lambert a joint defendant against his son, Lambert could be forced to pay a proportion of any compensation that he would have paid to him to his son. There was John Dines, agent provocateur. John Dines, who took the name Philip John Barker who was an eight-year-old boy who died of leukaemia in 1968. He was also known as New Zealand John. He was a Greenpeace infiltrator. He had a two-year relationship with Helen Steele, who later became a co-defendant in the McLeibel case. Steele became the focus of police surveillance. She had a sexual relationship with Dines before he disappeared without trace. However, Dines had not realised the effort that Helen would search for him as she was concerned for his well-being until she realised she had been duped. Dines left the police in 1994 and given a pension due to his ill health at the age of 34. There was Lynn Watson that was exposed. It's an interesting video of her on YouTube as the undercover clown cop. Lynn had a relationship with a male protester and there's an amusing story of how she was recognised in a Dorset pub in the book Undercover by Evans and Lewis. We're unable to give Lynn Watson's name due to reporting restrictions made for the ongoing undercover police inquiry. There was Marco Jacobs. He had a two-year, two serious relationships with women activists. Inside anti-globalisations and anarchist groups over the course of four years. His real name is restricted, restricted information, thanks to the, uh, the police inquiry. But Marco Jacobs was based in Brighton in Cardiff, claimed to have been a long-distance lorry driver, said to be fond of drinking, having a punch-up. There was Carlo Neri, 
real name, Carlo Sorocchia, who infiltrated the anti-fascist groups and were whose choice of girlfriends depended on their contacts with political activists. He behaved dreadfully towards them. His wife and children lived less than 10 miles away from his undercover work and made a vow London. He had three long-term relationships with activists. He was said to be a tough guy who liked to fight. Jim Boiling, a.k.a. Jim Sutton, or Jim the Van. He infiltrated left-wing groups for five years and was found guilty of gross misconduct by the police and dismissed for sexual misconduct, deceiving women into sexual relationships and being controlling during his covert deployments. During his deployment in the group Reclaim the Streets, he had sexual relations with three campaigners. He started an intimate relationship with Laura in 1999 without telling her his true identity. The following year, he ended the relationship, saying he was having a breakdown and needed to travel overseas. She saw him in London after more than a year and he admitted that he'd been a police spy. He said he regretted that he'd, what he had done and still loved her. Laura described how she was desperately vulnerable and fearful at the time and how, after agreeing to go back with him, he isolated her and exploited her state of mind to entrap her deeper into what she said was abusive, manipulative, controlling a relationship. They married and had two children before separating in 2008. The Met apologised and paid compensation to Laura. Jim Borling went on to work for the Muslim Contact Unit under Bob Lambert. There was Simon Wellings. His real name, again, is restricted information. It's known as he um, managed to infiltrate global resistance. The surveillance was carried out at Glastonbury Festival in 2009. The police operation was seen by many critics as risible. Many joked about it on uh, Twitter and elsewhere. Wellings does seem to be an incompetent person. He was discovered as an undercover policeman by being, when being debriefed about his spying. He accidentally caused his phone to ring to an activist friend. The friend was out, so a copy of the conversation he was having with his debriefers was captured on their answering machine. Wellings was unusual in one respect, that he didn't have any sexual relationships with those that people that he was spying on. There was Mike Chitty, also known as Mike Blake. He infiltrated animal rights groups and turned rogue after falling in love with an activist. He seemed to have a mental breakdown and was an awarded ill health pension by the Met, which was by no means an unusual turn of events. Mark Jenner operated under the name Mark Cassidy, a burly scouser who lived with his partner called Allison. An anti-racist campaigner for four years, from 1995, in Hackney, London. They helped run the Colin Roach Centre, which investigated allegations of police corruption in Hackney. Cassidy also was a fighter for an action who liked to fight far-right groups and gave support to the IRA. Cassidy just left after four years with an explanation, saying he was looking for work in Germany. Allison hired private detectives to track him down, but once the SDS were alerted, they blocked any further investigation. There were other undercover officers where assignments did not turn out as expected. 
There was a case of the spy who, when told his deployment was to end, refused to come out of the field, quitting the police and returning to his life as a radical leftist campaigner, using the same fake identity given to him many years ago by the SDS. Then there were other undercover officers who left the force for various reasons, then wrote to senior police officers threatening to go to the media and expose the SDS. They said they suffered from psychological difficulties and personality disorders as the result of their covert work. They were usually pensioned off. Apart from Black, they all tried to keep a low profile, except Mark Kennedy, who engaged the publicist Max Clifford, selling his story to the Mail on Sunday, giving his side of the story, claiming that he was in fear of his life, saying if his activist former friends accused them of being unhygienic thieves and scroungers who could not be trusted. Kennedy claimed that he'd been celibate until seduced by women activists. He'd been forced to respond, otherwise his cover would have been blown. It was a very promiscuous scene, according to Kennedy, and he had to act along. Kennedy seems to forget that he'd been in a six-year relationship with Lisa. This seemed to be the final betrayal by Kennedy, being paid by the mail, telling lies on his former friends. It was suggested that Kennedy must have been having a mental breakdown. Peter Black was quite vocal over the Kennedy case. He posted on the Guardian website after Kennedy was outed. He was replying to comments by readers. He was saying, Of course you read your comments, as well as all the other ones, nonsense or not, posted here or elsewhere, including at the UK Intermedia, because he's an intelligence gatherer. In fact, reading about his various hair-raising endeavours is probably one of the best NPOIU undercover police officers that they ever had. He spied on you as well as all your friends because that's what he was, secret police. He didn't choose to target you personally or indeed anyone else. But very senior police officers did and if he didn't do it then somebody else would have done it. As a direct result of evidently very piss-poor psychiatric support, yet again at the withdrawal stage for Mark at the end of his very long-term seven-year deployment, he inadvertently became your messenger, along with every other current and past environmental protester or civil rights protester in the UK. That there is something seriously wrong as to what the secret police are secretly doing and have been doing for many years since October 1968 when the Special Demonstration Squad, SDS, was formed, allegedly for the good of society, but obviously rather conveniently without them actually knowing what they are doing for them on their behalf. I personally also tried to speak out on this very issue last March 2010, well before anyone had ever heard of Mark Kennedy, Lynn Watson or Marco Jacobs via The Observer but my message was virtually ignored. Also please note I did it for no payment at all and without the loathed publicist by my side. There are videos of um, Black, Pete Black that can be seen on YouTube. So now you have a very new and very vocal messenger on the world stage so don't shoot him down don't beat him to death and deride him. 
Also, he doesn't actually want your sympathy at all. Just maybe a tiny part of non-idiotic understanding. In that it's totally impossible trying to get out of a role that you've been playing for seven years, 24-7, with no psychiatric support after at all afterwards, afterwards during which time you hated and loathed the police as much as all your fellow activists for what they did and required you to do against legitimate and rightful protesters. Finally, Mark, your route to knowing who you really are in finding yourself again will eventually come. It takes a very, very long time. But only if you... You no longer lie to anyone at all. Not your kids, your wife, family, friends, former targets, lovers, media, etc. Most importantly, no longer lie to yourself at all in any shape or form. Mark, your time for lying and acting is over. Indeed, your time as an environmental campaigner is over. But your time to offer your free support to any of your former targets, friends or indeed likely foes now, and now considering taking legal recourse against the police here or indeed in Europe, is now upon you. As for you personally, it's time to make all the senior secret police officers who were in charge of you at the time to sincerely wish they'd kept their High Court promise to me in June 2006 to provide adequate psychiatric care for all future deep covert police officers, especially after they were withdrawn. That there is um, a little speech that I found in the um, Guardian newspaper archives from Peter Black after Mark Kennedy was exposed. So, Peter Francis, a.k.a. Peter Black, who, as you can tell from that message, was very angry and has been lied to and let down by the police authorities on several occasions. The ongoing cases of ten women and one man brought against the police over relationships involving officers over the last three decades were the most part shunted into secret courts at the request of the police where the people bringing the cases will not get to hear the evidence. Many of the tactics now used by the police in public order situations were developed in response to the SDS intelligence about the best way to control potential troublemakers. This includes the controversial tactic known as kettling in which protesters are hemmed in on all sides by the police a technique that many believe only heightens tensions. At the time of the announcement of the inquiries into undercover policing, there was a theory that the black-masked anarchist investigators who caused the violence during the otherwise peaceful marches were in fact police plants in the ranks. The police never actually arrested any of the masked investigators who smashed store windows, hurled bricks at police, etc. in the Occupy and the G8 protests. But these anarchists that did a lot to discredit the movements and to give the police a much-needed excuse to beat protesters, many th people think that the so-called black bloc anarchists are completely infiltrated and controlled by the security services and are routin routinely employed at major protests to cause riots and demonise legitimate peaceful protesters. This year, during the 2019 Gilets Jaunes uh, demonstrations in France, 
There's claim that the black bot anarchists were in fact police plants. In November 2015, the Metropolitan Police Force apologised unreservedly to seven women tricked into a relationship over a period of 25 years by officers in the SDS and the National Public Order Intelligence Unit, MPOIU. The officers involved had eventually vanished, leaving questions, deceit behind, and the victims were psychologically tortured. Financial settlements estimated at three million for seven claimants were also made as part of the settlement. The three children were thought to have been born as a result of undercover policemen policing. Mark Kennedy himself also claimed in turn that he had been uh, incompetently handled by his superiors and denied psychological counselling. According to The Guardian, Kennedy sued the police for ruining his life and failing to protect him from falling in love with one of the environmental activists whose movement he infiltrated. Crown Prosecution declined to bring charges against any police officers or their supervisors, including charges for rape and other sexual offences, covering sex under false pretenses, unconsented sexual acts and other potential offences. The CPS statement stated that misrepresenting identity and obtaining sexual consent due to false identity did not generally create an offence of rape under English law other than in specific statutory defined situations and therefore rape charges would be unlikely to succeed. For similar reasons, indecent assault, procurement for sexual intercourse by false pretenses and misconduct in office were also felt to lack sufficient basis for conviction. It was thus accepted as lawful for the undercover police to use sex as a tool to help blend in. In a Channel 4 dispatches programme, officers claimed that officers had been tricked into having children and the official advice was to always use a condom, don't fall in love. There were other stories that emerged during the undercover policing inquiries. The SDS officers appeared at court in their covert identities. Some SDS officers were arrested in their covert identities and subsequently attended court. One reason given was to maintain their cover. The prosecution of undercover officers in role were allowed to go ahead as this helped build their credibility. Over the 40 years of SDS operations, 24 undercover officers were known at this time to have been arrested in their cover identities. Some were arrested more than once. The SDS the SDS officers supplied intelligence to the blacklist intelligence on trade union activists and passed it to blacklisting agencies. The blacklist maintained by a commercial enterprise known as the Consulting Association was a record of individuals that believed to have disrupted or subversed or caused subversion that could adversely affect the workforce. On the 19th of October 2011, the Guardian newspaper claimed that if a police spy was in danger of being locked up, prosecution of the officer and other activists would be mysteriously dropped. And Pete Black alleged that the prosecutions of undercover officers in role were allowed to go ahead if it helped build their credibility. 
It was also said that the SDS targeted the black justice campaigns. Stephen Lawrence's friend, who was with him when he got stabbed, Dwayne Brooks, had taken part in early demonstrations outside the BNP bookshop in the May of 1993. It seemed that there was a secret order from the top of Scotland Yard telling the SDS to place the Lawrence family under surveillance. There was a dirty tricks campaign to undermine the Lawrence family. The SDS were told to report back any snippets of information that, could, that may discredit the family. But there was nothing, nothing at all. The family could not be faulted, so an attempt was made to discredit the family by association. Dwayne Brooks was caught on CCTV at the May demonstration at Welling, uh, part of a gang of youths that were accused of pushing over a car. Brooks was charged with criminal damage. It was said that the Crown Prosecution Service appeared desperate to prosecute him. The Home Office were very sensitive about the wider implications of the Lawrence case, in particular the potential for rioting or disorder by sections of the black community in the wake of the loss of confidence in the police. Intelligence suggests that Dwayne Brooks saw some of the protest groups as a way of support, of supporting his cause when he attended the demonstrations. These protest groups wanted to befriend the Stephen Lawrence family in order to promote their own agenda. However, this was not successful due to shielding from their lawyers, Shurish Grover and Imran Khan, who wanted peaceful public support. Following the accidental disclosure of an appendix from the McPherson inquiry containing witness and security information, an officer from the Witness Protection Unit, WPU, was assigned by Grieve to Mr and Mrs Lawrence. The officer's role was to assist and provide advice to Mr and Mrs Lawrence regarding their personal security and safety. Their assignment began on the 23rd of September 1999. As a result, the officer had unequivocal access to both Neville and Doreen Lawrence and their family, Stephen's parents. The family liaison officer was in the Lawrence, or Stephen Lawrence's house taking all the details of all the family members who were there and all the visitors who actually gave their details. This was then passed on to the area special branch. The area special branch then passed it through special branch to the special demonstration squad, SDS. Operation Fishpool, the operational name of the Stephen Lawrence murder investigation, records, records refer to a special branch liaison officer the individual has been identified as PC Alan Fisher, Plumstead's racial incidents officer. PC Fisher confirmed that he was appointed shortly after the murder to be a liaison between Special Branch and Operation Fishpool. This role involved him passing details of potential suspects and white ring groups to Special Branch. There is an SDS report on Dwayne Brooks. On the 8th of October 1993, Dwayne Brooks was arrested, interviewed and charged with violent disorder and a criminal damage to a motor vehicle. He appeared at Bexley Magistrates Courts on the 10th of October 1993. PC Fisher was prevented by senior officers from disclosing SDS involvement to the McPherson Inquiry, the 1998 public inquiry headed by Sir William McPherson, who was examining the original Metropolitan Police investigation 
and concluded that the force was institutionally racist. The existence of an undercover officer was never disclosed and the SDS management did nothing to bring such deployments to the attention of the McPherson inquiry. The MPOIU continues planting undercover police in protest groups, although it insists that the identities of dead children are no longer used and the officers are prohibited from developing intimate relationships. The MPOIU operates now from Scotland Yard under the command of the counter-terrorism officers. Nothing's been done to reform the system of undercover policemen, despite many proposals. There have been over 15 separate official inquiries launched into undercover policing since Kennedy was exposed. All have been behind closed doors. The Operation Hearn, which examined the SDS, has put, off, has put some of its findings online. They made difficult reading as they seem as they seem desperate to put everything the SDS did in a positive light as possible and they put as few facts as they can get away with. It's very much a police tool. For decades, hundreds of police officers carried out secret operations against a wide range of political and trade union activists. They assumed fake identities, built relationships with campaigners to infiltrate social justice movements, and then reported back to senior officers. Once these operations came to light, the government decided on a judge-led investigation that it named the Undercover Policing Inquiry. The title itself is misleading. It's not an inquiry into cover, undercover policing, but an inquiry into the secret policing of political protest movements. Many would not challenge the necessity of undercover policing for those tackling trafficking human beings or child sexual abuse rings. Few would think necessary the secret policing of someone writing a leaflet opposing McDonald's burger chain or protesting against pollution from a power plant. There doesn't seem to be any balance. Consider this example of undercover policing of a suspected domestic terrorist. A 69-year-old retired physician... Peter Harbour discovered his name listed as a domestic terrorist in legal papers published by police online. Dr Harbour had never been convicted of any offence and has always passed the security checks when he worked in government laboratories. It turned out that his crime stemmed from his involvement in a campaign to protect a local beauty spot, Throop Lake near Oxford. The Empower, uh, RWE Empower, who owned the nearby Didcot power station, wanted to empty the lakes and fill it with ash. Wildlife enthusiasts marched, wrote letters, signed petitions in an entirely peaceful campaign. Senior police admit that many protesters they keep files on have no criminal record, but the police, but police justify in storing their information as they may associate with people that the police consider to be extremists. Secret policing has taken place for the past five decades without anyone in a position of power taking the view that it's wrong. There's every reason to think that the, pra that the practice will continue at a quickening pace. It's unlikely that the public will ever learn of the extent. Consider, for example, how it took 27 years to get an unlawful death judgment for Hillsborough, despite a determined fight by campaigners facing a culture of denial and defensiveness from police and public bodies and solid resistance from police bureaucracy. 
It is May 2019 now, and the can is being kicked down the road as the inquiry into the conduct of undercover police rumbles on. 29th of April 2019. The inquiry grants anonymity for those involved. This is why we can't give all the names of the undercover policemen that were exposed. The retired judge heading the inquiry, Sir John Mitting, handling the inquiry, is thought of many to be an establishment figure determined to kick the issue into the long grass. Undercover police have infiltrated and spied on more than a thousand groups since 1968. These groups infiltrated were usually groups that promoted progressive causes, animal liberation groups, socialist groups, fascist groups, but also groups such as Young Liberals and the Independent Labour Party. The inquiry was set up into the undercover policing by the then Home Secretary Theresa May to investigate what was described as the real and substantial failings of the undercover police. The inquiry was supposed to have concluded in 2018, but it's bogged down and far behind schedule. It's yet to hear any evidence in public and has cost millions in public money. Some people think that this is the deliberate tactic to deny, to delay proceedings to such an extent that people die or lose interest before any findings are made public. Well, that was today's subject, undercover policing. I could have probably squeezed another three or four episodes out of this, but uh, I suspect that uh, I've reached your limit. You can always comment on um, Strange Stories UK on their Facebook page. I'd like to thank Damselfly for letting me use their latest album as background music. And until next time, I'd like to thank you for listening and say goodbye. Goodbye.